What's up, everybody? Welcome to the VSM Real Estate Podcast, getting you closer to massively successful people in the Twin Cities real estate market. I am your host, Andre Anderson, today joined by Ryan Schroeder. Hey, hey, hey. And Manaswita Chaudhry. Hi. Uh, which we haven't had her on a podcast yet, but she is the accountant. We finally let her out of her cage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, rabbit animal. And of course, uh, Jeff Peterson is back. Hello, great to be back here. Yes, great to have you again. It's Thank an you. honor to have our uh, number one podcast guest back here. I think uh, when we saw the the statistics, yours was the highest rated one we've ever done. So Excellent. Yeah, I'm yeah. so excited. Yes. Yeah. And the third time, so, you know, it'll be even better. Guys, has it been the three times already? I think so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because yeah, we did the last one, I think, like, just a year ago. Yep. Yeah. Back for the annual checkup. The annual checkup. There we are. Yeah. What, what's new in the 1031 realm? What's new in the tax <laughs> taxes? Well, I'd say, you know, everyone is looking for answers on the Internet, and they are finding misinformation, and parts of the answers are given, but they're not really getting the full and complete picture. And so a lot of times by the time someone finally gets to me and they can get to the authoritative source, I'm spending a lot of time re-educating and correcting some assumptions that they had, and I will tell you, I don't know if I'm being punked, <laughs> but I get the call all the time that I've already closed on the sale of my relinquished property, and we got the money here. What do we do? We want to set up an exchange. And I have to tell them, look, the horse is out of the barn. You don't have an opportunity to do a 1031 because you need to set that up before the benefits and burdens of ownership shift. But honestly, I get that call like three times a week. And it's astonishing to me. And that means we need to do a better job of educating the public to get their ducks in a row mm-hmm. and set their exchange up before they dispose of that property mm-hmm. and trigger the realization and recognition of the gain. And just for everybody um, that might not be knowing what we're talking about, we're talking about 1031 exchange. Um, if you didn't know uh, or watch our previous uh, episodes with Jeff Peterson, maybe we can kind of just go through quickly what a 1031 exchange is, who you are, and everything like that. Okay. So my background is I'm an attorney uh, trained at the University of Minnesota Law School. I've been out since 1996. In the late 1990s, I got into facilitating 1031 exchanges and have been doing that pretty much exclusively. Our company was formed in 1998. Uh, We are probably the leading qualified intermediary in the Midwest uh, with a nationwide scope, uh, doing small mom and pop little deals all the way up to the $80, $100 million transactions, sometimes very complex transactions, sometimes very easy deals. And my passion is to be a servant at heart. I love to help people save money in taxes reinvest it into the economy, stimulate growth, build their wealth. I mean, it's just a win-win. It makes me feel great to help people succeed financially. Uh, I'm also an adjunct tax professor at Mitchell Hamlin Law School, where I teach federal income tax, which is either a three or four credit class and a big time commitment. But I love teaching, and I love to pass on my, if you will, tax nerdery Mm -hmm. to the next generation and get them excited about tax law. Um, because I think it's all about solving problems, and uh, that's just really fun. Uh, So that's my background. Now, you asked, what is a 1031 exchange? Imagine that you could go through life with a get-out-of-tax-recognition card. So you do a transaction, and we hear a cha-ching, 
and you just whip out the cards. Yep, move along. There's nothing here to see. No recognition of gain. Stay away, evil demon. Right. <laughs> and then you move along, and you do another deal. Cha-ching. Nope. Move along. No recognition of gain. How fast could you amass wealth without the drag of taxation? That would be amazing not to pay taxes. And then we have the benefit of transferring that to our child and get it at a fair market value. So yeah. you don't you end up paying not paying taxes on that deal completely. It's amazing. So lay it up for me, Jeff. What do we call that? <laughs> <laughs> my mantra when I do my um, meditations where I'm trying to attain enlightenment and financial success is I just take a deep cleansing breath and I say, Defer, <laughs> defer, 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 die. die. <laughs> and the step up in basis under yeah. Internal Revenue Code Section 1014 is like the ultimate. Mm-hmm. You pass it on to your heirs. They are absolved of all your sins. <laughs> <laughs> because the basis, like you said, gets stepped up to fair market value. Mm-hmm. It's a great plan, but in order for it to work, something has to happen. You have to stop breathing. <laughs> you have to stop breathing. Because <laughs> you have to die, and your heirs have to take this property with the, to get the step up in basis. And So not everybody wants to stop breathing, right? <laughs> um, so at a minimum, if you're not going to die, you're, at least you're getting the time value of that money that would have otherwise gone to the government and taxes, and you get to use that to compound and build your wealth. I was just talking to a lady um, a couple days ago, and she had a $450,000 profit, which she equated to a little bit more than $100,000 of actual tax liability. And she asked me if I thought it was worth it for her to do a 1031 exchange. And I'm like, well, that's kind of a subjective question, but I would do it for like $10 of tax deferral. I want to keep that money that I... I would otherwise have to give the government now and indefinitely hold it mm-hmm. and use it to compound and build my wealth, right? The only caveat to that, I would say, is you have to find a suitable replacement property. Sometimes people chase bad deals on their 1031 exchanges yeah. because they don't want to pay taxes and they get into something that isn't a good investment. That's, that's the only time I would say, well might be better off just paying your taxes mm-hmm. and getting into a shitty deal. You know, Ryan, uh, on chasing a bad deal, you and I both know a man that is now deceased, and uh, he was just frantic to buy a replacement property, so he identified a meatpacking plant in St. Cloud. This is a guy that did apartments, didn't know anything about the meatpacking okay. industry. I know we are talking about. He had an office in Uptown? Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so he buys this meatpacking plant knowing nothing about that industry at all, and in the middle of the night his tenant left the plant, turned off the air conditioning, and left these carcasses to hang. So not only does he take back the property empty of a tenant, but it's full of what? Decaying meat. Right. It was was a health department problem. You know, it was all that. And it took him forever to repurpose and refill that building. So don't chase a bad deal. And that's where working with really good real estate professionals start to finish is so critical because you don't know what you don't know. And um, a guy like Ryan, for example, he's been a veteran. He has borne the scars of his own mistakes and learned those firsthand, and he can really help you sidestep those 
landmines that exist out there in this process, so many landmines. Uh, everyone thinks that investing in real estate is just a breeze. Yeah, just but easy money, HGTV, <laughs> screw you. Right, but, but you know, while you can make a lot of money, yeah. you got to work with the professionals. And guys like Donald Trump, you know, everyone wants to berate him, but he surrounds himself with the smartest advisors, the best accountants, the best mm-hmm. lawyers, though they may be indicted at some point, <laughs> he's got the best advisors around him. And that's what I suggest to people is to build your team, have the best accountant, the best real estate broker, the best attorney, and the best 1031 guy. Right. And to your point earlier about the story you said about you get three calls a week saying, I've sold my property, now I want to do a 1031. Had you been working with a real estate professional who knows how the game is played, they would have informed them of the rules, what they are, and then got you in touch with, I would have gotten them in touch with you early on in the process. And we would have been concurrently looking for the replacement property when the first one was even under contract so that we can make sure we hit our deadline. So it does, I would, I would agree with you, the strength of your advisory team is, you know, instrumental to whether or not it's going to be a success from the disposition to the exchange to the acquisition. So cannot agree more. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Hey, I want to ask you about this thing I'm hearing about called the housing hack. Mm-hmm. I've awesome. got two young 20-year-old <laughs> kids, um, and I've got a lot of employees that are renting right now. Last night I was in an Uber with a dude named Faisal as my driver, and he told me that he'd been living in St. Louis Park, paying $1,700 a month in rent. Hmm. And I'm like, hey, I think you need to hear about this thing called the housing hack, and i got to get him your number because he needs an agent. Mm-hmm. But Tell me what that is and how that can be used to your advantage. Yeah, for sure. So for somebody that doesn't own any property, it's a really great way to get into real estate, get your feet wet into if you manage your property or anything like that, too. There's a lot of flexibility there. Of course, if you're an amateur, you could give it to VSM and we can manage it for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> please, <laughs> but, do. Yeah. <laughs> please do. Please uh, do. But at the same time, a great way to get your feet wet. Uh, you can take advantage of um, very low down payment options uh, for loans such as FHA or doing like a low um, like 5% conventional or anything. And it's an owner you own or occupy the property. It could be a single family house where you just either rent out room by room, or if it's a multifamily, you could do duplex, triplex, quadplex, and then just do one unit that you own or occupy, rent out the rest, and you basically just get all that rent get that mortgage down and a lot of times today um, it's a little harder to cover the entire mortgage and all expenses Uh, but if you find a good deal you definitely can Um, so that's the goal is to have your roommates or tenants covering the mortgage mortgage, the taxes insurance and you're kind of just living there for sure so another way of looking at it is when you're buying anything that's between one and four units and you get owner occupant financing, you can go as little as a thousand dollars down, uh, using the MHFA programs, um, three and a half percent down for, um, conventional and FHA and things like that. But, um, the way that I like to describe it is if you're really smart about it, let's say you buy a duplex and there's two units, each with three bedrooms, right? You rent out the one side of the duplex for, let's say, 1500 and then you rent out two of the rooms in the side that you're living in for $500 each. Now you've got $2,500 a month in rent coming in. Your mortgage on it is $1,800. Your utilities are $300. So you're making $400 a month cash flow and living for free while these guys pay down your mortgage. So 
Um, that's the way to do it. And in fact, I remember the first time you and I met, that was one of the things that I told you was like, this is what all agents should do. I remember you had a job, you were an employee at a logistics company, and oh, I yeah. said, before you leave, use that owner-occupant financing in your W-2 and gobble up at least one duplex before you do it. Daniel has done it. A lot of our agents have done it. Michael Bodner has done it. Um, and it's worked out really well for them. And he even took it to the next level, though. He started renting out rooms on a nightly basis using an Airbnb-type model. And so yeah. um, it's a little bit more management-intensive, but it's also higher rents. So. Okay, so higher higher income if you want to really work it hard. For sure, and not only that, but you can also do rent to rehab just like you would do any other model. So then you can get forced appreciation into the value of your home. Uh, and if you're on the way of path of progress, especially with the 2040 plan, like I'm doing in Minneapolis, um, so you know, take a look at the rezoning. There's all these things that you can stack up to. It's just a really great way to get in it. Um, when you do maybe like a low down like FHA, uh, if you have enough forced appreciation or if the market has just been very favorable to you, then you can refinance it to conventional, reuse it, and then just rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've helped a couple people do uh, some house hacks. Um, and I actually just ca- caught up with another guy. Uh, and things are going abs- like super fantastic. He loves it. So... You know, I think we should do a house hack symposium either at the University of Minnesota or somewhere in St. Paul where there's a lot of young students graduating, maybe graduate students. These are people that are going to have good Mm W-2s, good credit, and they need to get their foot into the real estate market now because I don't know about you, but my prediction is interest rates cannot stay in a sub four percent environment mm-hmm. for much longer, yeah. Yeah. unless this we turn into crazy. Japan, yeah, one percent or negative interest. I think I'm turning Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I really think so. All right, you've been eating too much sushi. <laughs> oh man, I love sushi. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> sushi. Well, let's talk Congress. We got a presidential election coming up in November. Um, there seems to be some very socialist elements in the Democratic Party that are getting a lot of traction. Mm -hmm. And my concern is our beautiful 1031 tax deferral could be a victim of some kind of tax reform. And uh, some of the pundits are talking about raising capital gains to redistribute wealth and so forth. Um, If we didn't have this vehicle called 1031 that allows you to move your equity into a bigger, better, like-kind property without the drag of taxation. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have that vehicle, what do you think the velocity in the real estate market would be without that tool? It'd be a good 40% slower than it is right now, I would say. I mean, roughly what you subtract off of it for taxes. I mean, yeah, I think it would do a lot to, to negatively affect the value of especially commercial property. So if you have less velocity, you got less deals going yep. on. Mm-hmm. And then you have lower property values because mm-hmm. there's less desire to own it. Right. And then you can't refinance your property, so you have less refi activity, which then causes... The degradation mm-hmm. of the properties and the market in general. Because, I mean, a big part of the reason that I've been able to survive some of the larger repairs that we've had at our apartment building is because the appreciation has allowed me to pull equity out, use it to do those improvements and then keep going. But in a depreciating market, you know, I probably would have had to give it up. So So default without being real political here, the rationale behind ten thirty one 
is to organically stimulate the economy, to move this cash in the marketplace to where it's needed most. And who's going to figure that out, the government or entrepreneurial investors? It's the entrepreneurial investors that move that blood through the circular system to where it needs to go, to find that appendage where it needs to go. And I'm just so excited about helping people do 1031s, but I don't want this tool to be eliminated or diminished or capped or somehow um, eliminated. In 2017, we did see some pretty significant changes to 1031 and that we can no mm-hmm. longer exchange personal property. And I used to enjoy doing aircraft, um, art, artwork, uh, other collectibles, you know, collectibles are taxed at a capital gains rate of 28%. Yep. So if you got artwork, collector coins, stamps, those are fun to do. Ten, they mm-hmm. were fun to do. 1031 exchanges, I <laughs> can't do it anymore. So we got we to gotta let people know to think big picture when you're voting in November and to vote the economy. I'm worried about when it comes to ever eliminating the 1031 is all of the other ancillary people whose, you know, industries would be affected. So uh, a slowdown in the ability to 1031 exchange means that banks have less deals to lend on, title companies have fewer deals, 1031 exchange companies have fewer deals. I'd have, Realtors, a, I'd have zero. Yeah, zero. yeah, yeah <laughs> yes, I apologize. Yes. I'd have now, to get an honest now job. That I, now that I think about it, you're, you're really screwed if this happens. Um, um, but, I mean, there's one of the biggest stimulus to the economy in general is when people buy and move up, right? They're hiring contractors to spruce things up. They're renting them out. There's, there's a certain energy and vibrance that comes with buying and doing something with a property. And I think it's a big part of our economy. I don't know what percentage it is, but I'm guessing it's pretty significant. Well, look at all those construction cranes mm-hmm. in downtown Minneapolis. Those cranes represent good paying union jobs. Yeah. Those are people that are building something substantial and real, mm-hmm. and they're making real living wages doing mm-hmm. it. So yeah, having high real estate values and stimulating goosing up real estate just helps everything else. Yeah. Now, what do we, we have super good property values right now, and we have what for unemployment? Negative. Very low. Like 50-year low. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. It's like 3% or something. I want to talk about passive losses. It's not really a 1031 topic, but it's kind of related. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, I think you might be the prince of the passive loss. So I'm going to pick... <laughs> I'm going to pick your brain because I think Sweet. I need to learn from you okay. about how to manufacture non-cash losses that I could use to offset my earned income, which is substantial. Um, I think I'm in a 50% effective tax rate. I mean, I can't take my uh, interest deductions on my home like I used to because mm-hmm. they've capped that at 10000 Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And what else have they Not the interest deduction. They have capped the real your taxes. That's capped at ten thousand. Your interest is capped at seven fifty thousand. If you're building values. Okay. Yeah. But more and more Americans are getting pushed into just not itemizing and taking Mm -hmm. the standard deduction for like fifteen thousand, I believe. And if you're not itemizing, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, you're not winning. Mm -hmm. So how can I generate some? nice tax deductions and get back into the itemization role. 
Well, the way that I've done it personally was to buy real estate that was in a distressed state, basically. Um, and that's for two reasons. One, because I was doing a value-add improvement to it and increasing its value, uh, you know, greater than my actual cost. Um, and partly because those improvements can become expenses in the year that in which you do them. So um, there's a little bit of uh, gray area there and what's considered a section 179 expense, what gets capitalized and things like that. But even if you bought something that was turnkey and you, or if you bought something value-add and you played it very conservatively, you would be able to have a new depreciation schedule. So what a lot of times people will do is it's called a cost segregation analysis where they took a look at this property. Let's just say for simple numbers, you bought it for $250,000. You might say 50,000 of that is going to be allocated to the land, which is not depreciable. The government says we're not making any more of that, so uh, it's not depreciable. And then of the remaining 200,000, you might assign 20,000 of it to personal property, which has a five-year depreciation schedule. So you're getting a $4,000 a year phantom deduction just mm -hmm. right there. And then the remainder of that 180,000 is divided <clears throat> by 27 and a half years for residential property or 39 and a half for commercial property. So you're gaining, let's say it's a residential property because 180,000 is definitely in that ballpark. Let's call it another $6,000 a year. So I've just got um, $10,000 a year in paper losses that I didn't actually have to write a check to anybody for mm -hmm. those losses when combined with property taxes, management fees, association fees, and you know upkeep of the property. For the majority of our clients and for myself, we're showing a paper loss for that property. Whether or not we're actually cash flowing or not, it's showing a paper loss. So to answer your question, for high W-2 wage earners, um, one of the best loopholes that I know of is for one spouse to be the high W-2 wage earner, the other to be a real estate professional. Wait, what does this definition real estate professional mean? Real estate professional designation is somebody who works more than 50% of their time in the field of real estate. It must be a minimum of 750 hours and um, they have to work in one of the qualified professions. So that could be, you could be a general contractor, a realtor, property manager, investor, flipper. It could be a lot of different things. It just has to be in that field. What about a 1031 guy? You know, I think that I think would qualify. I think that would probably work. I'd, or a title insurance I'd back guy? you up on it. Yeah. Um, I would have to look at the list to see exactly what is included, but I'm, I'm, I think it's pretty broad, actually. Um, so if you qualify as this real estate professional, what it affords you is you're allowed to have an unlimited amount of passive losses mm -hmm. counted against your earned income. So let's say, let's say now you and your wife uh, gobble up 10 properties and you have a loss of $10,000 on paper for each of them. You get this $100,000 loss. You take that and you bring it over to your W-2 income that you receive, and now you can just chop 100000 off of, uh, of that taxable number, which is great because um, not only are you paying less taxes, but ideally these properties are doing something positive for you. So. I just want to put that in perspective. So you're saying I can either do this real estate game mm -hmm. and generate these passive losses, or I can pay... In extraordinarily large amount of tax to the government. Mm -hmm. At the end of 10 years of doing your program, I'm going to have a bunch of properties that have appreciated in value. Mm -hmm. If I do my program of just paying a lot of taxes every year, what am I going to have to show for it? You'll have uh, the respect and appreciation of the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they notice. <laughs> yeah. I never get a thank you card. I never got one either. That's yeah. a good point. 
All right. Well, I like it. I think that for doctors, lawyers, yes. uh, professionals that are super busy in their careers, you're forgetting to mind your own business, which is to manage your adjusted gross income. Mm -hmm. You might be great at your job, and your W-2 is you know, enormous. You got great mm -hmm. income, but look at what you're keeping. You're not keeping much of it. You're in a 50% tax bracket. Half of everything you made just went to where? Yeah, to, to the reappropriation. <laughs> so we, we, I think, need to encourage doctors, lawyers, and other professionals to seek your counsel and to engage your property management company and brokerage company to get the properties selected, sifted, and picked, then set up by the management company so that they are operating correctly. And then once you've got them sort of seasoned, then they can take their real estate professional designation and start actively managing it once you've sort of set this thing on its course. I would totally agree. And so a real life example of this scenario would be my stepdad and my mom. So he's a CTO at Cisco Systems, high W-2 wage earner, lives in California. So he's getting, you know, hit with in every direction. Um, and my mom, she doesn't have to work as a result of his high W-2 earnings. So, um, but I've tried to- I've Trust been, me, she's working. Yeah. Well, I've clamored for years uh, for why I think they should you know, basically divert some of the money that they have in stocks and bonds and things like that and put it into real estate. And plus, my mom is naturally inclined to want to decorate and design and all this kind of stuff. So I thought that she would be natural at it. And so the 750 hour a year requirement wouldn't necessarily be a farce because there's certain aspects that she would hire out, but certain aspects she would own herself. And I think she could hit that. And um, it would be a way for them to both diversify out of stocks and into real estate, have an income, because there's really no income on the stocks unless maybe you have dividends, but most people just have those reinvested anyways. And then um, one thing, and this is, as you know, my greatest reason for investing in real estate is at some point you'll pay off the debt on those things and you can just you know, sit back and collect the rental income in perpetuity and then you can bequeath that to your children and uh, and then they you know you can have a dynasty, so yeah. I I just think that so many people are not thinking about the future, and a lot of baby boomers are going to find themselves having to work into their seventies. Do you want to be a barista when you're sixty-eight years <laughs> no. old, or do you want to be getting the grocery carts and bringing them back into the Lunds or Byerleys? No, you know, we got to be thinking about creating passive income, and. The time to do that is when you're young and healthy and vibrant and you've mm -hmm. got the energy to do it. And going back to the your mom, you know, you know stay-at-home moms are disparaged, I think, because everyone thinks they don't work. And I, I think we got to just acknowledge there's a lot of work to be done, even if you're not bringing home a W-2. And if you can layer on the real estate professional thing, in addition to all of the other labors that you have... I think that's great. That mm -hmm. can be a great way to uh, really enhance the wealth building ability of your little economic unit. Yep. Just awesome. I agree. How many houses can I get under the house hack scenario where I call it my principal residence, I live in it for a while, and then I fill that thing up completely with tenants and move on to the next personal residence? 
how many times can I tell the bank, it, it, this is my personal residence again, before I've run out of... 10. Really? Mm -hmm. It's just limited to the amount of personal loans that you can get. So what, what people will do is they'll buy um, one after another. So if you go FHA, there is a one-year period between you can buy. Um, there isn't that requirement if you go conventional. Um, the other thing is if you get a, like a commercial mortgage, which is what I typically use because I want to hold my properties in an LLC, there's no limit to how many you can have. Um, the only downside to doing a commercial mortgage is it's usually about a point higher on the interest rate than if you had it in your name personally. So what a lot of people will do is they'll buy one in their name, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Once they get to 10, then they, well, maybe I have to stop. Well, not exactly. All you really need to do is go back and take one, two, and three, refinance them into a portfolio loan with a commercial lender um, at, you know, whatever the loan to value is at that time, which you should have equity by the time you get to 10 in 10 years or whatever, pull those three off of your, your books, so to speak, do another three and then go back and, you know, wipe them off again. So I have a family member who is a software engineer, makes great bank on the W2. Mm -hmm. um, and her significant other is super handy, you know, can fix anything. You know, those two should get together and start doing the house hack and accumulating these properties. And if they could do 10 doors before they even have to worry about jumping out of FHA, mm -hmm. why not? I right. mean, this is, this is wealth building 101, but they don't teach this in high school, do mm -hmm. they? They don't even teach it in college. Nope. nope. And so my brother is looking to buy a house right now, and I was trying to show him some of the first of all, just how low the interest rates are and giving him some historical context with all of that. Um, but he's looking at doing a 20-year mortgage right now at a 2.875% interest rate, which is That's just insane. unbelievable, That's right? free, yep. free money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I told him, I was like, you might as well just, you know, go for the super low interest rate because if you were paying 4.5% on this mortgage, it would be like the same as getting a 15-year at what you're getting now. But part of the justification for him was, I said, secure this debt because it's fixed rate. And then even if you don't want to stay in this house forever, don't sell it. That debt is worth more than the house to me. If somebody said, hey, Ryan, I'll give you a billion dollars in debt at 2.875%, I would say, where do I sign? Without even having any clue of where I was going to put it, I know I want that. Right. It's lower than the inflation rate. Right. Mm -hmm. So you've got an arbitrage right there. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Um, Let's talk about some 1031 exchange pitfalls. You know, um, we talked about, you know, set up your exchange before you sell the relinquished property. If you receive the cash proceeds from your disposition, mm -hmm. you've got the recognition of the game. So you work with a qualified intermediary who insulates you from receiving those funds. Mm -hmm. Okay. How do you know your qualified intermediary is trustworthy? His name will be Jeff Peterson. Okay. Well, that's one of the yes. things that... I mean, you could use Bernie Madoff Exchange Services, yeah. right? <laughs> that's funny you bring that up because that's one thing that I've always appreciated about working with you and your firm is the controls that you put into place for when those funds are put aside. It's in an account where there's a requirement for your signature and their signature for anything to be relinquished. So that way you're protecting yourself against an unscrupulous, you know, 1031 exchange uh, holder 
Um, just in general, whether it be a broker or a title company or a, you know a qualified intermediary, you definitely need to know who you're working with and if you can if they can be trusted to to not you know take your money to the Cayman Islands. So, this word called Scheidenfraud, which is like where you take pleasure from other people's misfortunes, you hmm. know. And I've had this experience of seeing other people's debacles and always internalizing the lesson that they have shown me. Yeah. Um, in the late 1990s, there was a guy running around the Twin Cities hawking his 1031 services. And he allegedly took the monies that he was entrusted with and invested them in Internet stocks right before the no. bubble. I think he lost the stock money before the bubble had even burst. <laughs> All right, so that was a lesson that I learned through his debacle. 2008, a huge QI firm, I mean, we're talking like Fortune 500 business, had the same thing happen. They had allegedly invested the monies in securities that they thought would never become illiquid because they were backed by student loans. But the financial crisis of 2008 was so severe that even those securities became illiquid. The whole company went into bankruptcy. Now they're owned by one of their competitors that bought all of their assets out of foreclosure mm. or bankruptcy. Yeah. All right. So then just recently, in the last few months, I've become aware of a QI out of Washington, D.C., I believe, who allegedly just dumped all the money, not even into a segregated accounts, just dumped it all into one pot. It's, it's crazy. Um, I've actually had title companies try and take a run at doing 1031 exchanges with us too, like, um, you know, traditional, whatever, like they handle normal MLS type of transactions. And um, when I've actually pressed them a little bit for information about their services, it was kind of astounding. They didn't know any of the laws associated with it. They had a boilerplate form that they were going to use and thought that that was enough to help someone navigate all the complexities of the transaction. I know it's more complex than that. So. Oh, I just cringe. I just cringe because, you know, do you want to entrust your 1031 exchange to an untrained professional that's just typing up forms that doesn't, mm -hmm. they don't understand? All right, that's one issue. But the scary issue is if you look at their forms, guess who they co-opted them from? There are a lot of title companies in this town using my forms that are my work product that I've drafted and sent out maybe for a closing that occurred at their office, and guess what they've done? They just took they it. They just crossed out what's my funny, company's name I was just and inserted say, you know, their own. You know what's funny about that is when I looked at the form, um, it had clearly been Xeroxed, and so it was one of those forms <laughs> where like, it, it, you couldn't, it wasn't like a fillable PDF. It was something that somebody had once put in front of them and they, and they scanned, which would lead me oh to believe that they could have taken yours and just taken the logo off of it and that's all they have going forward is just a copy of a copy of a copy because you know like it was like kind of wonky and grainy so yeah i was impressed <laughs> anyway buyer beware caveat emptor you mm. got to know who you're working with that's you what know? i call the high cost of saving money uh sometimes if you if you just if you only shopping on price and not quality it, it'll often come back and bite you and I think uh, we've talked about this once before too. What is the, the expression like? Um, an ounce of prevention is worth like a pound of litigation, or something like that. Like <laughs> whatever, some sort of yeah. euphemism like that. But um, yeah. Well, I get a lot of questions from people that want to buy their replacement property 
from a related party. You know, and this makes great sense. You know, my mother owns this apartment building. She can't manage it anymore, and we know the building really well. So why can't I buy my replacement property from my mother? And there used to be a lot of game playing by typically big corporations that were shuffling assets amongst wholly owned subsidiaries so that the asset that is sold is the one with the high basis. They mm-hmm. were doing like a shell game. Yeah. You know, moving the low basis over here, moving the high basis here, and then selling this one. To prevent that kind of game playing, the IRS included 1031F that now says you can't buy your replacement property from a related person if the purpose is avoidance of the tax. The only exception to the rule is if, in my example, the related party that you're buying from is also doing a 1031 exchange and she ultimately buys her replacement property from an unrelated third party. So at the end of this chain of events, we're having an unrelated seller at the end. That will be okay with the IRS. Hmm. Um, so when we see these situations, we, you know, we try to dig in deep and see what the whole situation is and see if we can somehow persuade the, that related party seller to also do an exchange. Otherwise, it doesn't work. This is why I call you with these nuances, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of the stuff, like, you know, the basics of 1031 exchanges is, is not that complicated, but um, there's a lot of nuances that go into it. Once you get past the superficial, mm-hmm. the, the half-page description of the 1031 is easy to comprehend. But In this marketplace, it seems like everything's got a little hair on it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that comes at you straight. It's all a curveball, and you have to be able to have the experience and the knowledge and the perspective of understanding more than just one code section mm-hmm. to understand how you can you know, navigate through that, li- that minefield. I had the foresight to contact you a few months ago, if you recall, when Gorn and I were talking about wanting to plan to sell that Bonnie Jean building, and we didn't want to be necessarily tied to doing a 1031 exchange together. So um, I don't mind sharing the story. I called you, explained the situation. You told me we needed to bifurcate the property using tenant in common, each have our own entity as a 50% owner, do the books you know, separately for each of our pieces which we did, and then we you know, had everything updated from, uh, with a quit claim deed and all that kind of stuff with our other attorney. Now we're waiting out a year period of having held it that way before we'll entertain a sale. But had we not had the foresight to call and to ask, we would have tried to sell it and do a 1031 exchange and then been you know, only to find out that we couldn't do exactly what we wanted to do. So planning is so important in in having a strategy with your taxes. A lot of people just think of taxes as this unfortunate event once a year. Um, But if you actually have a lot of assets and you're thinking and you're planning and you're being smart, um, it can become almost like a bragging point. I think everybody should be thinking about how to minimize their tax liability by and I am a hypocrite, I will tell you that, because I get super busy with my life and I can't do this, but if I was always thinking about how I can conform my behavior to maximize the tax efficiency, I could keep a lot more of what I earn. And um, you always have to be thinking about what is it I need to be doing in the present 
so that when I do that activity that generates a gain, how can I minimize that? And so you guys were working a year in advance, setting the stage for a separation that would allow you each to get the maximum tax efficiency. Really smart. Along those lines, there's some other avenues where people are using a Section 708 spinoff where they take a partnership and spin off two subsidiary partnerships. And each of those partnerships can be considered continuations of the predecessor. Um, and so that's another way to kind of achieve that tendency in common uh, with maybe a stronger argument for tacking the period of time that the predecessor owned the property. Really cutting edge stuff that is just sort of being developed since the 2017 tax reform that occurred, that, that eliminated the um, technical termination of a partnership when more than 50% of the partners left. You can actually hear everyone clicking off the podcast when we get really <laughs> deep in the weeds on this stuff, but I find it really exciting. I find it fascinating. Yeah. yeah. You know, but we're hardcore nerding over here, so... So now if the partnerships are different, then they can have their own 1031 exchange and will not be tied to the ownership rule then? Yes, but each would have the um, holding period of the, of the previous entity that they derived the from. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, so maybe you, don't even have, maybe you don't even have to hold a year mm -hmm. because each has really held the property the entire mm -hmm. time that the predecessor owned it. Um, the only reason cool that stuff. I did the, when we did the tenant in common thing and held it for years, because I wanted to make sure there was nothing that could be held against me later by, by shifting it from VSM holdings to Schroeder family holdings. So. Gotcha. You know, you can't be too careful, too. No, I don't. <laughs> I mean, in this case, this is a like almost a, you know, make or break situation for me. I mean, probably uh, a quarter of my net worth is tied up in the equity in this building, and I don't want to give a bunch of it away. So, Excellent. Excellent. What other tax issues do you see your investors asking you about when you talk about 1031? You know, on a handful of occasions, we've had people talk about doing a reverse 1031 exchange, um, buying the replacement property first and uh, kind of retroactively doing it. But I think we understand that well enough to, to be dangerous. Um, I would say one of the biggest things for me when it comes to 1031 exchanges with my client base in general is that I don't know that enough of them are aware of it as a possibility. So we call a lot of our clients landlords by default. So people whose homes were worth less than they uh, owed at the time that they gave us a phone call, right? Well, now with the housing market being the way that it is and has been for the last you know seven to 10 years, they've got equity and then they sell. But a lot of them have held the property outside of, you know, their personal residence where they would have, you know, otherwise qualified for the homestead exemption. They've lost it. They've taken depreciation and then they sell their property and then they get a tax bill at the end and they're sort of shocked by it. And um, I don't know that they even are super aware that they could have done a 1031 exchange and kept the ball rolling. So I think there's a need to get that information out there. Because even a guy I was talking to yesterday who sort of was touting or acting like he knew a lot about real estate, he called it the 301 exchange. And I was yeah. like, well, that tells me right there that <laughs> like you don't know exactly what that is. So. I mean, even Manaswita didn't know the dates, so. Hey, <laughs> I was you know, not prepared for the podcast. <laughs> 
so so let's say that you own a house mm-hmm. you're living in that house it's declined in value you're underwater on it mm-hmm. and you can't sell it for what you paid for it so you move out of that house and you rent it out mm-hmm. you know originally when you bought that house you had a cost basis up here but when you put it into service as a rental property your basis gets written down to the fair market value at the mm-hmm. time you put it into service mm-hmm. Then you depreciate it for the years in which it was a rental, and your basis drops even more. So when your property comes back up to par, and you think, let's sell this thing, you've got a lot more gain there than you might think you have, Mm -hmm, and you don't have any valuable tool other than a 1031 exchange because you've lost the window for your... Homestead exemption. Right. And a lot of people are only making that decision based on what's my mortgage balance Mm -hmm. compared to market value net of fees, you know? So it, it, it could be could be bad for some of them. So. I see a lot of people asking me this question. I bought a lot of stuff back in the recession when values were super low. And I've managed this portfolio of intense properties. And I'm tired. And I see that the values have come way up. And I'm thinking, I need to sell some of these. These dogs that I have that are more management intensive um, and consolidate instead of owning like five duplexes in different suburbs, mm-hmm. I think I'd like to own one less management intensive property that I can focus my attentions on. Do you get that question a lot? Yes, of course. Um, and that's one of our ideal client types as well is somebody who need somebody who can navigate the disposition of tenant occupied properties because you know Joe Blow realtor out there isn't necessarily equipped to do that and to understand the questions that investors are going to ask about cap rates and net operating income and you know all those kinds of things but then yeah uh, the only thing i will say is making that incredibly difficult to pull off is the multifamily market in general has been scorching for half a decade to to the point where cap rates are you know, basically at interest rates right now, which, you know, kind of, I don't know, to me, doesn't get me excited, but. Well, some of my clients are looking in different segments than multifamily. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're looking at uh, retail, mm-hmm. industrial, uh, even farmland, some of these folks, and I would never go into farmland myself, but uh, looking at different business segments or jumping across the river. I see a lot of Minnesota investors that are looking at Western Wisconsin and some of those towns that have good unemployment numbers, the economies are growing, but the shortage of housing mm-hmm. has uh, kind of caused a little bit of a, a demand, totally. but, but no one is looking out there. And so if I can get the same amount of doors for twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000 left per door by crossing the river, why not? Right. So you have to be creative to find that centralized product that you can exchange into that still makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Daniel Kurkowski, who you know came up as a, as a protege to me, now he basically does what I do, except for in commercial space. And um, he's really adept at it. And he's got a whole team. That's all they do is the value add uh, investments in commercial real estate. And so they're doing primarily industrial some office and, and some uh, some retail, but they're kind of staying away from multifamily because of just the, the swath of 
competition for it. But um, that'd be another option for people like you're talking about as well. So I'd like to uh, get you guys on record. I want you to make a prediction. Mm-hmm. Will Minnesota legalize marijuana? Mm, yes. Yes. Yeah. What will happen to the value of warehouse space in Minnesota if Sky- that happens? Skyrocket. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's supply and demand, so. I mean, what happened in Colorado is there's just no warehouse space to be found. It's mm-hmm. all been turned into facilities for growing, mm-hmm. distributing, or... Making oil and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe I would sell a bunch of my duplexes and go buy a really nice warehouse with a shorter-term lease so that when that thing happens, I can pop it into a much more profitable industry, the marijuana industry. I mean, I was in California recently in a, a little beach town of 3,000 people, and there were three shops So that sold all the products. So there's clearly a ton of demand, mm-hmm. what, 10 years, 20 years after they legalized it in California. It's still, still moving strong. And when I went in the shops, not afraid to say that, uh, they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't just like CD, you know, burnout, hip, you know, hippie types or whatever. They were like legitimate businesses, no different than like a, a place that sold audio equipment or you know worked on computers or something like that. It was just, it was like little boutique retail shops that was very traditional. So, hey, if it creates jobs, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. taxed by the government, and it's mainstream. Does it really matter to you whether it's a liquor store or a pot dispensary? It makes no difference to me. And anything that keeps billions of dollars flowing into the hands of the cartels, I think that the United States needs to take a lot of responsibility for what's happening in Central America right now. And you know, I want anyways. to tell you, uh, my family took a vacation to Canada about a year ago mm-hmm. after they legalized the uh, thing there. And a lot of times when the family gets together, Mm -hmm. there's acrimony as old sibling rivalries are renewed and people get on each other's nerves (laughs) and they're not used to being compressed together. Have you felt that in your own family? Yes, I have. But this trip to Canada was completely different and I can't put my finger on what element. (laughs) Marijuana. It could have changed that. Everyone Everyone was was very mellow. Just very calm. Very affectionate, you know, tactile, you know, and... So I think it could be a good thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the way I look at it, specifically with marijuana, is um, kids were dropping dead on, from from inhaling, you know, this whatever cheap crap that they bought on the street. And uh, and I mean, shit. The moment you regulate it and you make them go through mm-hmm. uh, per, per, protocols and stuff to make sure it's safe, you've just eliminated that. You know, I mean. Shit, alcohol is 100 times more dangerous as far as I'm concerned, so for sure. Well, if people want to get high, they're going to get high. Right. Mm-hmm. You can buy these air cans that you yeah. use for cleaning <laughs> your computer. Yeah. yeah. People inhale that stuff mm-hmm. and get just whacked out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably not good for your brain, mm-hmm. but if they want to get it, they're going to get it. So right. might as well tax it and put it in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Make it safe, yeah. But let's talk about our perspective, and that is know what the trend is going to be. Make the trend your friend and position yourself ahead of that trend. So if you think warehouse space may become more scarce as a result of the legalization of marijuana and you've got management-intensive properties, why not transition some or all of your portfolio and get ahead of that tsunami of appreciation? You talk about forced appreciation. Boom. Right? Yeah. What other trends are going to be out there? I think interest rates can't stay down much longer. 
Mm-hmm. So I say lock in low and lock in long. What other trends are there that we should be getting ahead of? Anyone? Mm. I think it's a good time to be a seller right now if you've got something that you've been thinking of selling uh, because of the things we've talked about, the economy and the interest rates and things like that. This is a good time to take some chips off the table, whether it's stocks or real estate, I think. Uh, you know, that, That's just my general opinion on it. Um, sell when everyone's buying and buy when everyone's selling. And since everyone's clamoring to buy right now, well... Maybe you'd sell. Yeah. Comrade, let me tell you a little bit about Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. We are looking at a really anti-landlord governmental attitude. More regulation perhaps even imposed, what do we call that, rent control? Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, and restrictions on uh, application and yeah. security deposits, all sorts of stuff. I think a trend, a, trend, a trend that we're going to see is increased hostility to landlords mm-hmm. where they're jacking up the taxes and imposing more regulation and constriction. Minneapolis is not a fun place to do real estate deals in the really large multifamily area because you're getting you're getting squeezed. So why don't you find those localities that have less restriction, less regulation, and lower taxes? Mm-hmm. Dakota County. I love Dakota County. I love Dakota. Shh, don't tell yeah. anyone though. Don't like tell it. anyone. <laughs> Listen, the property taxes are like forty percent less. Yeah. Their mill rates at about like one and a quarter percent, whereas Ramsey and Hennepin are at two and a half to three. Mm-hmm. So um, that's just that's just right out of the gate, and let alone the the thousand dollar rental license thing in Minneapolis. And mm-hmm. I, I we did a whole podcast where I just lambasted uh, on Minneapolis for like half an hour, and then I <laughs> got chicken shit and deleted it before it went out there into the, the internet. But oh, uh, listen, I own a condo. That's not even rented out. I let a family member live in that condominium without rent. But because I'm not living in the condo, and my family member is, the city of Minneapolis wants me to get a rental license. I what? That, I thought I'm not renting a, it. I thought there was a loophole for that, but maybe there isn't. I can still homestead it mm-hmm. because it's it's homesteaded for property taxes. One property. But I, I got to get a rental license in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? They're, they're pickpockets. They're just a very anti-investor uh, environment. Oh, I know. And without going too controversial on my Minneapolis opinions, <laughs> um, how can a city tax, 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 spend, 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 but still have the shittiest schools, the worst roads, and not enough police to stop it from earning the nickname Murderapolis? So, uh, I mean... It's the most inefficient <laughs> city... Okay. Their Nicollet Mall rework took years. Mm-hmm. There's a project down by the Stone Arch Bridge that's just been a, I don't know, five-year delay. I mean, it's just a big construction hole. I don't know why they take so long to get projects done. Very weird. Very it's, weird. It's yeah. government bureaucracy, and like they're, they're, the, not, they're, they're the, the definition of inefficiency. Like. Yeah. Well, they killed all the retail on Nicollet. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to. Um, but the, this go is on trends. These yeah. are trends. So, just to recap some of the trends potential legalization of marijuana, interest rates rising, more regulation in Minneapolis, maybe a flight to the more uh, 
undesirable Dakota County, Scott County, Washington County areas where there's less taxes and less regulation. So these are trends. And while values are high, velocity is high, this is a great time to reposition your portfolio, move around, maybe consolidate and get rid of some of your dogs. I spoke to one investor who's had a tough time with a property. First, the tenant went $5,000 in arrears on rent. So she tried to evict the tenant. But at the last day, the tenant ponied up the $5,000. Okay, so she can't evict the tenant. Then the tenant causes all of these ordinance violations with the city. So now the city attorney is sending the landlord threatening letters that they're going to be in trouble because of the tenant's bad behavior. Now she has to spend money again or spend time and energy to go try to evict the tenant on these ordinance violations. Why why are you holding on to this stinker? Well, if I sell it, I'm going to get crushed with taxes. Are you, though? Not necessarily. (laughs) I say, no, I will show you the promised land where Mm -hmm. we can trend 31 out of that problematic property. Let somebody else evict that tenant, and you move on to the next deal. Have them give me a call. I'll I'll make it all better for them. I bet you will. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, Bone Crusher. I have had a great time on the BSM podcast. I love you guys. I have nothing but admiration and respect for you. And uh, if I can ever be of service, please give me a call. I want to help you guys as much as I can and help your clients as well. Yeah, sure. How could they reach out to you? Well, my number is 612-643-1031. Boom. (laughs) If you got the 1031 at the end of your phone, you got to be legit, right? Yeah, have to be. Yeah. I had it on my license plate, but now I'm car free. (laughs) You're car free. Well, I'm working on it. I'm right. working on it. I Love thought it. doing 1031 exchanges, he would have hired a chauffeur to. Maybe oh. he's. I think he's more of a hipster or something. Hipster. He must be riding his bike to work or something. I don't know. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. As uh, as you have respect for us, we do for you as well, and we've always appreciated everything that you've uh, offered to us as far as advice and input, coming and being our podcast guests and inviting me out to meet people and making introductions and everything. Got nothing but love for you. Thank you, man. Thank you, everyone, for joining. See you next time. Thank you.